Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Shane Weister. And I just pick up people wherever I go. And this is the honey man. And my husband and I found him in a restaurant in Winchester, Virginia, earlier in the fall, because we had traveled there for a football game and found out that you are quite the man in terms of honey production and expert on bees. So welcome, Shane Weister. Thanks for being game for this conversation. Thank you, Teresa. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you certainly have the gift of gab. I could see that when I met you. Uh, you just kind of leaned over and started offering us advice on the restaurant. Can you remember the name of the restaurant? Because I can't. Yes, it was uh, Chinatown in Winchester, Virginia. Okay, well, we, we would recommend it to any listeners who happen to be in Winchester, wouldn't we? Absolutely. <laughs> it was wonderful. And we just started talking and I learned a little bit about your story and thought it would be wonderful to hear more and share it with my listeners today. So let's just start off when you introduced yourself and you said something about how much honey you sell in a year. What was that statistic or that number? Well, I don't know if I gave you a real number. Um, I just told you, I think that it was a lot because, you know, there's trade secrets, right? And uh, so it, it was more than enough to meet the demand of the market that uh, we sell in locally. Okay. Well, I won't tell you what I remember, but it was something like, <laughs> I don't know, a thousand pounds or something like that. Maybe Probably. you don't have to comment, but either I remembered correctly or I didn't. But I just wanted to start by the story of how you got involved in beekeeping and, and developing and harvesting honey and selling honey. Our story, as many things, was out of necessity. Many years ago, I suffered with allergies and hay fever, and I bought my honey from some local suppliers. Now, I didn't always start out that way. I worked in forestry, and some guys that were senior to me shared some of these homeopathic remedies for allergies, and I, and I just wasn't buying into that. So uh, on a whim one spring, I went and bought some honey and 60 to 90 days into it, I realized that uh, I wasn't having the, the allergy problems. I, I actually thought I had a deviated septum at that point and really had a lot of sinus problems. So, um, you know, I bought that for a number of years. Crazily, I, I suffered a, uh, an injury uh, requiring some, some time off. And while I was off from work, it was in the winter. I wanted to stay busy. I can't remember if it was my wife or some friends said, you ought to check out this beekeeping thing. And I admittedly am a little OCD. Once I jump into something, I jump in pretty hard. I'll grow pretty fast and then I'll back off. So I, I took this beekeeping class and having worked in, uh, in conservation related work. I, I enjoyed it. We bought three colonies to start with and we were off to the races. Um, a couple years went by. Our daughter worked for um, a local farmer's market, um, Orr's Farmer's Market. I was in visiting her at work one day, and just in conversation, some of her colleagues found out that we were honey producers, and the business was basically born out of that. Um, they began to purchase honey from us, and that essentially has grown our business to what it is today, um, is agritourism and the area that we're in. And you still preach, I suppose, the benefits of honey for allergies, because I've heard that so many of us have allergies. And I've also heard that local honey helps. Absolutely. Um, not only did, um, you know, those first couple classes and my OCD behavior push me to educate myself to a greater degree, it, I learned so much that I, I literally changed careers. I was afforded an opportunity to um, work as an apiary inspector, which is a disease 
inspector for the state of West Virginia and continued on and worked into another state. So it's put me in, in front of a lot of people. My testimony is, is true. Um, so I consistently share with people that, uh, you know, if you talk to some folks out West, they're going to tell you local honey is anything east of the Mississippi River. And you'll hear different um, numbers given. Is it 50 miles? Is it 10 miles to be considered local? And basically, it's, it's anything that uh, derives its pollen from species of trees and plants that are similar to what's in your, but you always want to buy from the local guy. You know, that's ideally, you know, you want to buy from somebody that's in your local region. I think you and I here, you know, we were in the Appalachian mountains here. You're a little further South than we are, but we have a lot of goldenrod that, uh, you know, the ragweed is really what gets people. The ragweed is what really causes those allergies and a lot of that hay fever, but yeah, it's great for it. it, it I, I can't tell you that it healed me hundred percent, but it certainly changed uh, my behavior. So when I'm marketing it, I'm just not selling a product because I, I believe in it. I believe that it works. I know that it works. And, and rumor has it that our honey is some of the best around. I can't, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to believe that myself, but I can't take any credit for that. So uh, I think I have the hardest working bees in this part of West Virginia, though. You know, that was the next question I was going to ask you, but about your bees. But first, let's just clarify very quickly where you are, because I said I met you in Winchester, Virginia, but you live in West Virginia. So how would people yes. find you if they're driving around looking for your your honey at a local market? So we're, we're involved with one of the most uh, pronounced uh, farmers markets in eastern West Virginia, which is Orr's, O-R-R-S, Farm Market right outside of Martinsburg, West Virginia. Um, and our farm is just over the mountain. We live in an agricultural community known as Glengarry, West Virginia. And we're in a river bottom here. And our farm adjoins about 22,000 acres of, of state-owned wildlife management area. So our bees are foraging very well. And then we carry our product over the mountain there to Orr's Farm Market, which is one of the larger um, orchardists uh, in the area. So you're close to this gigantic piece of property that's wildlife managed, you said. From what I saw when I was looking for information about you and your farm, you have a small farm. What does that mean, a small farm? So we, we you know, some will call it a format. It's, we're homesteaders many years ago, many years ago. You know, what I really started out preaching self-sustainability. You know, most grocery stores didn't even come into existence until the latter part of the 60s. You know, World War II took a lot of, separated a lot of families. It required a lot of women to leave the home and work. And then we saw the self-sustaining farm begin to diminish and grocery stores came into existence. And I'm just a firm believer that it's, it's my responsibility to care for and feed my family. So we adopted that philosophy. We produce our own eggs. We raise a, a small herd of meat goats. We've raised our turkeys over the years, and we've raised um, pigs over the years. And I'm going to be honest with you, up until two years ago, people thought that was a crazy notion, and it wasn't a lot of time. Uh, but uh, some weird stuff happened that afforded us an opportunity to really reevaluate caring for ourselves and spending more time at home and, and growing our own food and vegetables. So, yep, just a little homestead operation. When you say little homestead, I'm thinking 30 acres. No, no, no. We only, um, the footprint of what we actually farm is just a little over eight, eight, eight acres. So the bees are profitable because 
they forage out three to four miles from my home. So, you know, our goats and our chickens and the pigs that we occasionally have, they do well on that small footprint. The bees, we're, we're in a perfect area environmentally because of this river bottom with this large tract of vacant land behind us. And um, like I said, they'll travel three to four miles. Basically, the majority of their foraging happens within a mile of the house. They'll travel out three to four miles out of necessity. But here where we live, uh, there's not a lot of people living here, a lot of uh, forest and a lot of river bottoms that, and a lot of farms that supply for the natural forage of my bees. Yeah, isn't that nice that you don't have to own the land and that the bees can just go do their thing yes. on other people's land? That's, abs that's absolutely right. So the question that I was getting ready to ask you when we were looking into your background is you said that you think that the honey that you comes from your bees is the best and that your bees are the hardworking bees. I bet you're <laughs> in love with those bees. I, I am. I enjoy um, just watching how they move and they, they communicate with each other and how they collaborate understanding the science behind beekeeping and and just bees are beautiful but the misconceptions that we have about bees most people are just undereducated when it when it comes to how bees actually operate so i think that's why it's important for those that are passionate about beekeeping that they learn um, good science-based beekeeping and then share that knowledge not just their opinions because we're a very opinionated bunch um, and that's one of the, the deficiencies with beekeeping. There's so many opinions, right? So we want to understand the science and just look at the beauty of the bees and the varieties of the bees and just the life cycle of the bee and how they process their forage. And Here's our life chance. Cycle. What is it that we, what is it that we most misunderstand as a population about bees? So one of the things I, I think most people misunderstand is that Beekeeping is, is not easy. Um, it requires serious commitment 12 months out of the year. Most folks think that I'll just go buy a box of bees. I'll sit them out in nature and, and they're going to do their thing. And, and that's just not the case. They require good animal husbandry to thrive. You know, they need some help through, uh, you know, seasonal dearth. You know, dearth is a lack of, uh, it's a lack of natural forage. So I think that's one of the misconceptions which ultimately leads to the downfall of the beekeeper. So oftentimes it's like uh, maybe buying your kid a duck at Easter. You know, it's probably not the best idea if you don't, if you live in a townhouse in the city. Uh, bees require um, they supplementation in their diet. They require disease and pest remediation and understanding what's going on in the colony. And they, they require attention even in the winter, in the fall, winter, and, and early spring months. So I think the biggest misconception is just that they're hands off. They're far from it. They require a lot of attention. Tell us about the hive and what's going on in that hive. And I want to know how it is that the queen bee gets to be in charge of all those worker bees. And how does she get protected? What if anything happens to her? Tell us just about the dynamic within the hive. So there's another misconception. The queen doesn't run the show. Her daughters do. The queen is at the mercy of those 60, 50 to 60,000 daughters uh, that are uh, roaming around inside that colony. If uh, the queen doesn't make the grade, if she's deficient in her ability to lay, 
her daughters will remove her. She gets fired. They will remove her from the, they will begin the process of eliminating her and they will, they, they will eliminate her completely and requeen her if she, so the goal, the, the colony itself is always concerned about the colony. The queen is at the mercy of the colony. So, so what is her queen, job? I, what, her what job is just, she lays eggs nonstop. And the daughters? The daughters take care of her. The daughters take care of the young. The daughters take care of the colony. But the so daughters all, aren't all, laying eggs all the time? No, only the queen does. The queen is the only one laying eggs. That's it. The daughters bring in uh, nectar, which is your protein. They bring in pollen, which is your carbohydrates. Or I'm sorry, I've got that reversed. Your pollen is your protein and your nectar is your carbohydrates. So they care for, so all, all the queen does is she roams around the colony and lays thousands of eggs a day over her couple year lifespan. And the daughters feed and care for the young. That's it. I'm going to have to go back to uh, sure. tell me about the birds and the bees, but how do the, how do the eggs get fertilized? Oh, so, so when, when that virgin queen is hatched out, She's going to take what's called a mating flight. So uh, she basically, in the first couple of days uh, after she's uh, she she emerges, and and as long as it's the weather's permitting, she takes a, a a mating flight. She goes out into the atmosphere where the drones, which are the fertile males that are living in a colony, so she'll go out into the atmosphere, um, and all these drones are pheromonally attracted to to an area in the atmosphere. And this virgin queen will pass by and she is going to breed or mate with, I don't know, a dozen, 15 of those drones. So she will be inseminated on that virgin flight. She will then carry, she carries all the eggs and all the semen in her body that she will ever have. It'll all happen in that moment that she's inseminated. So she will be able to return to the colony. Her daughters will feed her and fatten her up so she can't fly away. And then she stays in there and she continues to lay eggs until the colony deems that she's insufficient or that the colony's grown to the point that they need to split, which is a whole other scenario. I just want to say, wow, I, there needs to be a children's book, maybe in addition <laughs> to every elementary school <laughs> right? textbook about how all this works. And yes, ma'am. This is more than just about what goes on in that hive. This is really about saving the planet. If I'm anywhere close to correct, and that the bees are often in danger. That, that's true. And, you know, there's, there's varying issues that, that people discuss. There's, there's environmental hot topics when it comes to bees, whether it's GMOs and glyphosphates. And my avenue, the thing I approach the, the most when teaching or discussing with people is their animal husbandry, animal husbandry, accepting responsibility for your bees, making sure your bees are healthy, making sure that the pests are under control and, and accept responsibility in your bees with what you can. You know, I can't control what happens on the other guy's farm. We need the bees for pollination along with the other pollinators. Um, you know, West Virginia is an amazing place for monarch butterflies and ruby-throated hummingbirds and uh, multiple varieties of natural bees and, or I'm sorry, of native bees and, and um, other uh, varieties of, of bees that, that pollinate our crops and our forests. You know, so it's a big deal. If we if we lose the bees, then we're going to be like countries in Asia that are pollinating plants with feathers. They're having to use manual pollination. So they'll po humans get involved and they pollinate plants with feathers. So they'll carry the pollen from one plant to the other. And there's these uh, different ideas of uh, um, 
robot bees where they're using these little itty bitty mechanical bees to fly about and pollinate. So there's, there's, there's are interesting little things that happen overseas. So we need to do our best here to be good beekeepers, right? And raise genetically superior bees and handle all the pests that we can. Let me interrupt just a second, Shane, and sure. uh, remind listeners that I'm speaking with Shane Weister, and we were referring to him as the bee and the honey man. My husband said, oh, you're going to go interview your honey man. And I said, yes, <laughs> he was with me when we met you and your wife in Winchester, Virginia, and just started talking and learned that you had such a story to tell and how you fell in love with bees and beekeeping and are on a mission and want other people to understand about bees. We were just talking about the kind of the responsibility that bees have in our environment. And I saw something interesting. I don't know whether it was on your site or somewhere else, but that in a weird way, our bees are responsible for feeding our cows. What would that oh, mean? Oh, absolutely. So those grass, those native grasses require pollination. So even the cereal, the cereal that we have, the grains that we have, that sandwich you had for lunch last week, there was a bee involved in the production of that bread, that uh, porterhouse steak that, that your husband might like. The bees were involved in, uh, in the production of that porterhouse or that hamburger because of the fact that they're pollinating natural grasses um, that are ultimately turned into silage or grain or feed for all the animals that, that we consume or create byproducts that we consume. And so the bees are flying around and they're taking pollen. Explain that whole, explain just in simple terms, what is it that bees do that keeps our planet going? So what bees do every day, everybody has a job. Everybody has a job in the colony um, that they do every day. Um, and if they don't do that job, they're removed from that job. Uh, the colony runs like a well-oiled machine. So every morning when the sun comes up, the temps come up, um, as long as the temperatures are above 52, 55 degrees, everybody goes out and it's in their genetic code to begin to forage. And whether the colony needs water brought in, whether the colony needs uh, the, the, the pollen brought in, which the pollen is a, an amino acid, which are the building blocks of life, or whether it's nectar. So um, they'll visit uh, throughout the day, oftentimes my bees, you go out first thing in the morning and they're, they're bringing in pollen. As the day goes on, they're bringing in nectar. And then you see these wonderful flights. They come in and they begin to land and they've got these little pouches of, of uh, purple and, and red and yellow and gold uh, deposits of pollen under their wings that they're bringing back in and their bodies are covered and they're just heavy and they're loaded down, you know. These are the these are the workhorses of the environment, you know, and bringing in this, you know, the forage for, for the other bees to keep going. And so then they make honey. Why do bees make honey? What does the honey do for the bees? So here's the secret. Right. So bees make honey for themselves. Bees make honey to get them through the winter. So this has been a wonderful year. Agriculturally speaking, in the region that I'm in. We've had a great year uh, uh, in the orchards. We've had a great year with honey. So they, honey is food for them. So they continue to draw out honey and that's to help them get through the winter months. So what we do, we're, we're kind of robbers. We're thieves. We, um, we steal just enough honey from the bees. So we leave enough for them to get through the winter. And then we keep, we steal the rest for ourselves, so to speak. But I'm not uh -huh. stealing it because I, I put in a lot of work. So I figure I'm entitled to uh, take my fair share. 
you're helping with the production. You're one of the worker bees. I, I am. <laughs> I put in a lot. I put in, I don't put in as much time as my girls do, but I, I put in a lot of time. And so then, so you really are robbing the honey because the bees would use it for themselves. What is it like? How do you do that? That can't be an easy process when you're trying to produce a lot of honey to sell. It, it's not. And it's a balancing act because at the end of the day, um, we have to assure that our colonies have enough food to get through the winter. So um, generally speaking, we know what it takes to get a colony through. And I don't want to put a timeline on it, but generally um, we fall into a dearth in July in my area. We do have a small fall flow. Um, I, don't, I don't worry about that so much. The, the fall flow for me is so minimal that I just leave it to the bees. So I pull off um, just enough honey in July, late July, early August. I pull off enough and put it in storage and then we begin to extract. So we'll leave about anywhere from 40 to 60 pounds of honey per colony, which is um, if everything's done right, that's enough to get them through. We do do some supplemental solid feeding. We'll put on uh, uh, supplemental carbohydrates and supplemental protein, which comes in a solid form. So we'll also put that in the colony. Then we take the, the, the honey that we have uh, robbed from them and then we run it through a basically a centrifugal extractor so we have to uncap it um, we remove the cap wax and then we put the frames of honey in the extractor and then it through a centri 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 centripetal force spins out all the honey and then we we put it in in our um, storage containers and then bottle it up for retail sale oh i've got to ask this question real quick what about the crystallization of honey when my honey crystallizes do I throw it out? Not at all. Um, and I've, I've taken great pains to explain this one away. Crystallization occurs. Um, actually, the more crystallization you see in a honey, the realer the honey is. So we know that honey is comprised of uh, uh, glucose and sucrose sugars, right? And as, uh, as the weather changes, this time of year, we, we struggle with uh, crystallized honey. So crystallization occurs when the glucose molecules begin to bind up with the pollen molecules and it changes its form. It becomes a solid form. The color changes everything. If Truthfully, if you see honey sitting on the shelf for six months to a year and you're not seeing crystallization happen, you probably have a lesser quality honey. Um, a lot of folks are just not familiar with it and they think that there's something wrong. There isn't. That's the best honey you can get is honey that's showing uh, high signs of uh, crystallization. What you can do if that's really bothering you so that you don't uh, reduce the medicinal properties, you just want to bring that honey up uh, in temperature to about 120, 130-ish degrees. And we, we thaw that honey out and return it to its liquid form. So the medicinal qualities remain, all the, the, the proper microbes remain. Um, because a colony it's about 130 degrees all the time, whether it's zero degrees out or it's 175 degrees out, the bees will maintain an internal temperature of about 130 degrees. They do that by process. Uh, when it's hot, they will do a process that's called bearding. Uh, the bees actually remove part of their biomass and they will come out on the front and hang off the front to remove population to, and then they fan at the entrance to, to reduce the heat. Um, so yeah, crystallization is, uh, just a normal part of the process. And is it okay for me to just put the crystallized honey on my toast? Oh yeah. Yeah. The texture changes. It becomes a little gritty. 
um, because it is in a solid form, but nothing, the only thing changing about the honey is its consistency. Um, nothing else has changed. There you go. Helpful hints from this conversation today. So Shane Weister, what do we do to protect the bees? What in my life, what can I do? Well, the one thing you could do is you can buy from your local honey producer. You can help him stay in business by, by, by doing business with him. Keep your money local, right? Um, find out who the best beekeeper is that uses the best management practices and, and just cater to his business. Two is by doing that, you enable him to do a better job. You help him with his finances, you know, and uh, it just allows him to grow his apiaries um, uh, as well as, you know, take the time to get to know the guy or the gal. There's plenty of lady beekeepers out there, um, you know, uh, so do that, um, educate yourself. Um, and honestly, not everybody should be raising bees. You know, uh, it's, it's fine to be passionate and get excited about things, but sometimes we should just leave things to the professionals. Um, sometimes we just need to leave it to people. So if you want good honey, maybe you should just buy it from the right individual and leave the beekeeping to folks that have plenty of time to do that. Uh, the last thing we want to do, cause if we're raising bad bees, uh, those bees will actually travel around and uh, they may affect my bees or they may affect other beekeepers because if, if you haven't done a good job at managing, disease is high, uh, pathogen, pathogens are high in the colony, and those bees will actually infect your neighbor's bees who are really doing a good job at raising bees. One bad beekeeper uh, uh, that's not doing his job in an area can wipe out a lot of apiaries. One other quick question. We are really out of time, but I just want to ask you this. When we were building this radio station and putting up the transmitter and the tower, we had to take down one tree and it had a nest of bees in it. And Mm -hmm. I think we called somebody and had them moved. What should we do if we find a natural hive of honey? So if you need, so if you need to do an extraction or a cutout, um, we've done those ourselves. You can reach out to your state apiarist. You can reach out to a local beekeeping club in your area. And there's always hobbyists. Uh, there's always uh, commercial beekeepers that are willing to come and do that um, colony removal or that swarm removal. So reach out to, in your area, be the Virginia, uh, is it the Virginia Department of Agriculture down there that handles uh, that stuff? Uh, West Virginia, it's uh, West Virginia Department of Agriculture. There's bee clubs in your area that will more than helpful in sending out uh, somebody to to uh, harvest or you know to pick up those bees and move them to a safer location. You know we are so out of time. I could talk uh, for a long time more and and enjoy learning so much more from you, but we're out of time. So say again, Shane, please, where you are and how people would find you. So the name of our business is Glory Ridge Farm and Apiary. You can find us on Facebook. That kind of gives a, a a story of what we do. Our honey is for sale at. Ors Farm Market in Martinsburg, West Virginia. That's Martinsburg, West Virginia. And then our farm is in Glengarry, West Virginia. All right. Well, we thank you. Will you give our love to your bees and thank them for what they do for all of us? And I thank you very much, Shane, for taking your time to talk with us today. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Teresa. And thanks above all to the listeners for tuning in to WEHC and this conversation, which you can hear Wednesdays at six and Sundays at two. So please stay tuned for more fine programming.